Hello and welcome to the Global Inquirer. We are an undergraduate research podcast based in the University of Virginia, and each week we bring you stories from across the world to explain how global trends are impacting real lives. I'm your host, Emma Ross. Today we're discussing the Rohingya refugee crisis. I'm sitting down with Lindsay Baker, a global security and justice major. How are you doing today, Lindsay? Pretty good. Thank you for having me. When we were talking about this episode, you kind of told me you were interested in diving deeper into the questions of how terror and security complicate the issue and what to believe about the two narratives presented both by the government and by the UN. So let's back up and kind of give our listeners an introduction to the Rohingya refugee crisis. Who are the Rohingya? So the Rohingya are a Muslim minority in the country of uh, Myanmar, and the country is a majority Buddhist country. And they are being systematically pushed out of their territory in their kind state by military violence by the, uh, authorized by the state. Most of the Rohingya have fleed to nearby Bangladesh and are kind of caught in between the borders of Cox's Bazar, the place that they are going to in Bangladesh, and the Rakhine state in Myanmar. So today I'm going to ask you a little bit more about the history of this crisis since it's been going on for quite a long time and then take a look at the narratives presented by the UN and so forth. So can you start us off kind of at the beginning of how this crisis started? Absolutely. The crisis originated after Myanmar got its independence in 1948. Its independence movement was largely a nationalistic movement and the government largely centered around the fact that it was a Buddhist majority in the country. So the Rohingya being a Muslim minority were targeted by the government as foreign beings. And despite the fact that the Rohingya had been in Burma since the 15th century. So Ever since 1962, they had a really strict military authoritarian regime, which started carrying out operations to force the Rohingya out. And in 1978, that was Operation Dragon King, where the military used violence and rape to push them from the Rakhine state. And then in 1982, there was a Citizenship Act passed by the government that listed 135 ethnicities that qualified for citizenship, and the Rohingya, despite having a population of one million, were not listed on that. And this was the point where they became stateless because they did not officially have citizenship country. And then in 1991, the operation was called Clean and Beautiful Nation, which drove out 250,000 Rohingya to Bangladesh. The large tipping point in this narrative uh, is in 2012, four Muslim men were accused of raping a Buddhist woman. And the military and Buddhist national security forces attacked and burned several Rohingya villages. And this was the beginning of the clear shift from the government to an ethnic cleansing campaign rather than just unorganized violence. How do you define the distinction between genocide and ethnic cleansing and which terms are being used and applied to this narrative? So ethnic cleansing, um, as defined by the UN, is a purposeful policy designated by one ethnic or religious group to remove by violent and terror-inspiring means the civilian population of another ethnic or religious group from certain geographic areas. And this is not recognized as an, as an independent crime under international law, whereas a genocide 
has a very clear definition that was established after the, the 1948 at the Convention of, on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. It is any of the following acts committed with the intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group, such as killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to bo- members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. Genocide is a high crime under international law, and it would force and it would force legal action if it was declared a genocide. This is most often referred to as ethnic cleansing. There are some UN officials who claim that this crisis has the hallmarks of a genocide. No, that's completely outrageous how something as small as a term can impact international action in this. And I mean, same thing when when we were going over the refugee crisis in our global humanitarian class, we were talking about how even calling it um, a Rohingya refugee crisis can be um, divisive because the Myanmar government doesn't consider the Rohingya refugees. They're internally displaced people or not even recognized most of the time since, you know, they say a refugee is someone who is forced to escape their country for war, persecution, or natural disaster. I'm going off of an Oxford definition from this. But you can see how something as small as semantics or definition impact real action taken in the real world to help people who are struggling. Absolutely. And that brings it into the Rohingya are actually not considered refugees because Bangladesh did not sign the 1951 Refugee Convention. So they are therefore not recognized as refugees and do not qualify for official humanitarian aid, um, which complicates that. But um, the Rohingya are therefore then both stateless actors and um, not official refugees in this crisis. Yeah. I mean, since we're talking so much about definitions, can you explain how Accepting a definition that we might not agree with might give someone like humanitarian actors access to help these people. By the Rohingya not having official refugee status, this complicates aid response because they are unable to organize in a way that they normally do and that aid is usually organized in cluster systems that respond to certain aspects of a crisis. But instead of a cluster system, it has to be more of an informal grouping of responders, and that complicates how efficiently aid can be delivered. So now that we've gotten semantics out of the way, which are very important in this specific situation, can you bring us back to the modern day narrative, um, what's currently going on in the crisis? Yes. So the crisis escalated in 2016 with the rise of the Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army, which is a armed group of Rohingya villagers who have risen up against the abuse and mistreatment by the Myanmar government, and they have coordinated several small-scale attacks on border police stations. What led the Myanmar government to burn down over 200 Rohingya villages was in 2017, the Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army, or ARSA, um, attacked a border police station that left 12 police officers dead, and that caused the military to launch their current um, offensive violence against the Rohingya. So in total, since 2012, 400,000 Rohingya have fled the Rakhine state into Bangladesh. So since the offensive, what's happening to the refugees next? Most of the refugees have moved into camps in Bangladesh. And because of the violent nature of their of the ethnic cleansing, they a lot of them have faced a lot of emotional abuse. And we'll hear this from Abdul Salam Ola, who will describe how he's the only one left living in his family. 
Sometimes I have these nightmares. I see dead and burned people. They have no flesh, only bones. I have no brothers, no sisters, no father, no mother. I have no relatives now. We were, we were a family of nine. I'm the only survivor. They killed them all. That was a really powerful clip that you played there. Do you mind specifying who the they is that this man is referring to? He's referring to the Myanmar military. So with conflicting messages coming from both the government and the personal narratives, can we dive into the Myanmar government's response? Yeah, the government response is that they see ARSA as a terrorist threat and they are going on these cleansing missions to remove potential terrorists from their country. The state councillor of Myanmar, Aung San Suu Kyi, who is the de facto leader of the country and a Nobel Prize winner, does not believe that there is any action being taken against Muslim besides those who are terrorists. We can hear from the Minister for Social Welfare, Relief and Resettlement, Win Mayat A, who denies any military violence by the state. No, uh, not, uh, not, it's not true the 100%, and I mean the 100%, because of the conflict between the two communities and the, because of the terrorist attack, there is the cleansing operation. They fear for that. Cleansing operation for the terrorists. As this clip shows, the government takes no responsibility for the actions of its own military. So with the Myanmar government mounting the sort of defense for their actions, why are they so defensive and what is the UN proposing that is happening currently in Myanmar? The Myanmar government declares that the UN has a biased perspective and is not has a biased perspective and is not spreading the truth about the situation. Um, but the UN, as of January 2020, the UN International Court of Justice has ordered that Myanmar take urgent action to protect Rohingya from genocide. Now we'll hear from a UN official who will testify how these acts are absolutely horrific. Even by the standards that we're used to seeing, this was absolutely shocking stuff. I mean, absolutely shocking. And I remember thinking how children were hunted down, aged five or six, and had their throat slit, and thinking, well, this is ISIS-like stuff. So I think it's incredibly powerful that he compared the Myanmar government's actions to ISIS, who is a world-recognized terrorist organization. And I think that kind of speaks for itself in that a government of a country is being compared to a terrorist organization. So if I've learned anything so far, it's that this is not a very straightforward crisis. There are many different actors at play and there are many different moving parts at the same time. Um, I find it especially interesting and I want to ask you about the security threat that is posed right now to the people of Myanmar and Bangladesh because of the different violent groups that are arising. Yeah, so there's several actors here. There are Rohingya-based groups that call themselves the Brotherhood Alliance, and this is made up of the Myanmar National Democratic Alliance Army, the Tang National Liberation Army, and the Akron Army. And together, and together they fight against the Myanmar military and their insurgents on the Rohingya. From 
the Myanmar public, there are Buddhist extremist groups such as the 969 movement, who is led by Ashin Warathu, whose movement is led to preserve the cultural traditions of Buddhists and believe that Muslims are a threat to their culture. A quote from their leader, Ashin Warathu, is, if you buy from Muslim shops, your money doesn't just stop there. It will eventually go towards destroying your race and religion. These groups tend to racialize the Rohingya and believe that they are illegal immigrants in the Myanmar country, when in fact the Rohingya have been there for centuries. The complex nature of the complex nature of this crisis has enabled jihadist groups to exploit this for recruitment. In the Islamic State's Dabak, which is an online publication that they use for recruitment, they have highlighted the plight of the Rohingya and they have planned to gather a stronghold in Bangladesh to launch tax on the government of Myanmar. Al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent has released recent statements that has indicated Myanmar government as a future target. Al-Qaeda's central unit released a statement calling for attacks to punish the government of Myanmar. All of these efforts are denounced by the government of Bangladesh and Myanmar. The mistreatment of Muslims in Myanmar has amplified the Muslim emotive motivation for joining jihadist militant groups. Despite the complications that come from having so many groups involved in a crisis and the variety of political opinions by government and international actors, it is really the Rohingya people who are suffering at the end of the day. Yes, like you said, while all of these different groups are kind of fighting amongst each other, it leaves everyday civilian refugees kind of placeless. And those are the targets that humanitarian aid workers do want to help. But, you know, it's complicated further by all of this fighting. So how do humanitarians get boots on the ground to help the people who aren't part of any violent group necessarily and just trying to live their everyday lives? I think the humanitarian response is definitely complicated and hampered by the threat that there could be terrorists amongst the refugees. But at the end of the day, there is an increased imperative to help these people because they are stateless and they have no country advocating for them. And even Bangladesh for a while was not willing to accept them. They in, in 2012, Bangladesh stopped offering assistance to the Rohingya and essentially shut their borders to refugees. But in 2017, the government shifted to a long-term acceptance plan of the refugees. But this is largely attributed to an increase of international pressure on Bangladesh to accept their humanitarian imperative. And this is also in the interest of leading to an increase of pressure on Myanmar, because as of right now, the targeted U.S. sanctions and several rights groups who are demanding justice has not led to much action by the Myanmar government. Since you bring up Bangladesh, I do kind of want to raise to the attention of our listeners a couple of statistics so they get a sense of scale. I know Cox's Bazaar is the largest refugee camp in the world. And I mean, in context of America, you know, we currently bring in, what, like 18,000 refugees per year or something like that is our limit, versus today in Bangladeshi camps, there are a half million, I will repeat that, a half million Rohingya refugees currently residing in Bangladesh. So that's kind of mind-blowing numbers, and the amount of stress that it puts on Bangladesh is mind-boggling. Um, so we'll bring it back here to the Myanmar response, because, I mean, so far we've looked at, you know, the army response and kind of shady narratives to cover up different government actions. So how has international pressure changed in the past couple of years? Has Myanmar improved their response at all? The Myanmar government still has not changed the response 
they have said that they are willing to let Rohingya back into the country, but there are reports from the Human Rights Watch organization that say the Myanmar government has placed landmines on the return trails of the Rohingya, which has also hampered those fleeing and any who would return, but I think the majority of Rohingya are very hesitant to return to a place where they were experienced such gross acts of violence. So we'll bring the episode to an end here by kind of reflecting on the conflicting narratives. We have reports of what the Myanmar government is saying, and we have reports of what the UN is saying. There's kind of a Western bias to believe the UN, um, because it is, you know, the ideal cooperation of many countries, even though it is very, very flawed. Um, But we're getting reports and, you know, analyses from different outside groups as well. So I think based on your research, what do you think our listeners should walk away understanding and believing about these conflicting narratives? I think it's important to pay attention to the narrative of the Rohingya themselves. If you listen to the stories they tell and the horrific acts that they have experienced, it's just so unfair for us to not listen to them, for us to believe that they have not been raped, burned alive, and mass slaughters have occurred is irresponsible. And a listener should take away that we should not We shouldn't allow our governments to keep silent on the issue. And I think there are some initiatives by certain countries. And that's our episode for this week. As always, thank you for listening to The Global Inquirer. And thank you to Lindsay Baker for bringing us this week's story. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Consider leaving a comment and liking us on Facebook. And be sure to join us next week 